So today's message, we're in Exodus, and as I was looking at this, I almost just went on by, and part of it is because I feel like this, is, this has become a certain theme in my life, and so it's, it's possible that I share this every possible way in different ways, but as I contemplated it more, I thought, no, it is the theme that God has placed in my life, therefore I should talk about it, and it's a theme that I think is good for us as a fellowship to consider constantly and to never, to never stop considering this fact. And so as we look at it, it's a, we're starting in Exodus chapter 6, and I am, um, I'm just calling today the Lord and his people. So the way, the way we're going through here, a couple weeks, or last Sunday, I think I read through to the end of chapter 6 and into 7. Um, so this week, I'm just looking up chapter 6, and then I think the following week, we will be going back again um, and looking at some, another set of, of interactions. And so that's kind of the way that I'm approaching going through Exodus is I'm wanting to have us consider different um, interactions that either Moses or Aaron or someone has with God and how that uh, impacts us. So if we look at uh, Exodus chapter 6, there is a, uh, we will, for right now, we will read something else in a minute, but first I just wanted to read through uh, 14 through 27. So this is what we would call the genealogy section here in Exodus. And it says in Exodus 6, 14, these are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137. The sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimi, according to their families. And the sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Meli and Mushi, and these are the families of Levi according to their generations. Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, his wife. She bore him Aaron and Moses, and the years of the life of Amram were 137. The sons of Izar were Korah, Nephag, and Zikri, and the sons of Uzziel were Mishil, Elisaphan, and Zithri. Aaron took to himself Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab, sister of Nashon, as wife, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. We'll run into some of those names again later. Verse 24, And the sons of Korah were Aser, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korahites. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putel as wife, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites, according to their families. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the, hand, from the land of Egypt, according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. So he, he's making a point here. He's tying Moses and Aaron into the greater family. So what we have now is we have a, we have a genealogy that starts with Adam, that then is also again picked up with Noah and then with Abraham, and then it comes down to here. And now it gives us again a genealogy here later in Chronicles. It's again, the lineage is again placed in, in, in order. And as I was looking at the lineage here, I know that when we were talking about the, 
um, the lineage of Christ, we had gone through some of these and talked about different characters in it. And so that's kind of what we're doing now. We're still in the lineage. We're still talking what's happening to them, but we're actually bumped over to the other line. We're in the line of Levi, talking about Aaron and Moses, instead of in the line of Judah. And so there are several pieces here that in later we will be looking at more specifically. And uh, I, I just, today, not wanting to look at the individual people as much because we, they will show up as we get to them. Uh, they will, we will get to Kohath. We will get to Merari as we continue through Exodus. But I wanted to just think in terms of this is a genealogy. This is a list of names. This is a list of, so it, and, and, and so for someone who is truly trying to put together a timeline of what's happening in scripture, things like this are invaluable because you, when it literally says that uh, Levi, the days of Le- the life of Levi were 137 years, and then it gives us that Kohath were 133, and Amram was 137, and then we get down to now our Aaron and Moses. And so later we find out exactly, you know, how old are Aaron and Moses. So we have a, we actually have a, a bit of a timeline. It doesn't say that, that their children were born on this date, so we can't exactly do it, but it does give us something to run off of. And so it causes uh, people to look at the timing of where we are and say, okay, so one potential, this is the one I personally use when I'm dating this time frame, is just to say that from the time that Abraham got the vision where God had told him and said, your, children, your, your descendants are going into Egypt, but after 430 years, they're going to come back out. And so I'm looking at it from the time that the Lord spoke to the time that they're leaving was the 430 years, not 430 years in Egypt proper. Now, there's different ways of looking at that. I, I've, I even noticed when we were at the Ark Encounter or the Creation Museum or something, this, this very discussion was brought up. And so, but I'm just, was, I'm not actually talking about that. I'm just pointing out that this is one of the places where we get some information that we can use when we're just trying to decide what is the age, what are the generations here, how, many, how much time has passed. And so this, this, this discussion of time passing, when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, well, that's, that's easy. I'll just go with whatever the Bible says. And then I discovered that when you say that, you still have to come in and say, okay, so according to my calculations, then it means this much time. And someone else can look at it and say, yes, but I'm calculating it like this, and it means this much time. And it can, you can still come up with different calculations. It's not specifically laid out as a calendar that we can totally understand all the time. And so this is a this is a, a, a question for us of do we have the fullness of understanding when we look at these things or do we have a, uh, is, there a, is, there a is there something left out? I looked at, uh, we read all of these. We read the entire list here that is given to us here and it's specifically identifying Moses and Aaron and how they fit. We also have Another verse over here that I really was wanting to focus in on today, and this is Exodus chapter 6 in verse 7. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, God is, is speaking. Well, we can actually start in verse 6. And so this is after he's explaining that he'd heard the groaning of Israel, but he'd had a, he had made a promise to them. And so in verse 7, he says, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. 
And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses. So if you remember, this is the time when he comes back and they're now moaning and groaning and under anguish because Pharaoh is making life hard for them. And God is, but God is telling Moses, go tell them this. Go tell them that I'm going to take them as my people. And so it was this moment that as I was looking at that verse that made me think of one of my favorite themes throughout all of scripture. And it's just a simple theme of the fact that God chooses people and the fact that you can have an entire um, genealogy of people and we come in here, we come in here, we come in at different times and we have varying levels of God interacting with a group of people is fascinating to me. The fact that God seemingly will jump several generations and then have deep conversation with someone and then a couple generations later again have the same, like again, really instruct and move someone. And occasionally when you go through, you find that there's like a father, son, and grandson and like it keeps going for several generations. And so the question that I, I sort of brought with this as I was contemplating it is like, is it God's desire, in, even here in this account that we're reading now, was it God's desire to not only speak to Abraham and then to Isaac and to the Jacob, but also to Levi, to Kohath, to Amram, and then to Moses and Aaron? Like, did he want to have the same detailed conversation and instruction with everyone? Or was he okay with the fact that several generations were just sort of coasting along? So this is, it's a question I'm asking because like in my own generations, when I look at my family, I feel like um, when I go back and look, there are times when my generations are just coasting and there's other times when they're actively seeking the Lord. So what I, for instance, this week, I've been doing a little bit of more reading from the 1600s. So early 1600s, all the way through about 1670s, this is a time frame in Switzerland where many, many people are still coming to Christ and they're insisting that you need to have an actual relationship with Jesus and then you should be baptized. And they're, they're, they're at odds with the state church, the Reformed church, and the Reformed church is saying, oh, actually, uh, every when your child is born, you have this many days, I think it was eight days uh, for a while there, that you've got to bring it, that child to the local church. We're going to baptize that child and it will be part of the church and then that's what you have to do. And so what had been happening by the early 1600s is now for almost 100 years, there had been people in Switzerland going, no, we're not going to do that. And we're actually not going to come to church with you guys because you have several issues. And so some of the issues that they had brought up were, well, we don't feel comfortable bearing the sword. And in Switzerland at the time, and I think this is still very similar now, if you were born there as a citizen, then it was expected of you to be part and train with the other men in your vicinity because Switzerland had, was still recently enough removed from the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church was still sending armies down to try to bring Switzerland back to them. But they were like, no, we are part of, we are our own church. We're not part of you anymore. And so they were saying for the self-defense of Switzerland, we need everyone in Switzerland 
to actually train, all, every man in Switzerland to actually train, to actually carry the sword, actually be ready to fight at a, at a moment's notice because we don't know when we'll be attacked and we're not going to have an army per se. We are all armed. And so as people were coming to the Anabaptist faith and they were reading the words of Jesus in Matthew, they were saying, oh, I don't think that I can do this. I cannot bear the sword. And so they had multiple issues with the state church. And so as they came to the state church, uh, or as they stopped coming to the state church, I should say, the state church is saying, wait a minute, why are people not here? And so one of their first, in the early 1600s, one of the first lines that they had was they came back and said, look, if you're going to live here, you've got to do this. And so they were like, yes, but we can't. And so finally, in the 1630s and 40s, I believe, I'm still working on the time frame, uh, the church was actually like, okay, look, you don't have to be part of the army, but just bring your children, get them baptized, be part of the church. And the Anabaptists were like, no, we're not going to do that either because we don't think that's correct. We think our children should grow up, that they themselves need to put their faith in Christ. Then we will baptize them. And so they kept having, and so, the, so they, in the early 1600s, they had, uh, there was an old elder in the Anabaptist church. He was in his 70s. His name was Hans, Hans Landis. And they, had, they finally had gone after him, had arrested him, and they beheaded him for, his, for not submitting to the local church, the church that was there. And so as a result, so many people saw this and was like, well, that was really in poor taste. So the Swiss government uh, was like, okay, well, we won't... Um, behead anyone anymore. So what they started doing was they would arrest people, put them in the dungeon, and then just not feed them until they died. And so they were doing that with, with a lot of believers, but they weren't killing anyone. They were just, you know, they got sick and died. And so this began, this was this, the time frame. And so for someone to, at that time in Switzerland, to say, well, I believe God has called me to actually live for him outside of the Reformed Church, there were so many things against them. Now, what I found fascinating about this is that um, to this day, there are Reformed churches that are, if you join one, you have to, you basically are in covenant with the church. And, and this, this idea is that you, if you ever decide to leave the church, um, they can then practice church discipline against you because you've made a covenant with the church. And so, and, and what's fascinating to me is that most of those Reformed churches, they're still very comfortable having all of their, um, their members can be part, participate in government, participate in military, be part of war, and they're fine with infant baptism. And so you have this, and, and they're still here amongst us. And, and so this is the part that's fascinating. I'm, I'm getting there eventually, okay? So I'm in, a, I'm in the homeschool movement. And so I have friends in the homeschool movement that are very strong proponents of home education and a lot of other things, but they're also part of these reformed churches where they're covenant membership and they have a lot of other things in place to hold them there. And I look at that and I look back at Switzerland and say, look, you're, you're very similar to what was happening then, except you're not part of the Swiss government, but you are still wanting to have something so that if someone says, I don't want to be part of you anymore, they say, well, then there's punishment. So it wasn't until mid 1600s that finally one of the leaders said, Look, if you're not going to do these things, you need to leave the state. And the Anabaptists were like, are you going to let us do that? Because the last time we tried to do that, you were punishing us for leaving. You wouldn't let us leave. You wouldn't let us, you, you just were controlling. And so they finally were like, yes, you can leave. And so suddenly a whole bunch of them were, were leaving and they were given, they could like, 
actually sell their farms because before people were leaving, but they were losing everything. They would lose. And so what would happen now is if someone discovered that they were an Anabaptist, they would come, they would try a few times to bring you back into submission. If you weren't coming, then they would send the local magistrate down. They would take over your farm. They would auction it off and they would put the, the, the leader in, in prison, the, the family, the, you know, so whether it was the dad or the mom. Well, so a little bit later, what was happening, um, what they would do, and this was the part that just, I couldn't quite understand this, is so let's say one person of the family um, actually converted and became an Anabaptist instead of being part of the Swiss Reformed Church. They would put that person in prison, and even if the rest of the family was still going to the Swiss Reformed Church, they would then start charging that family, sometimes several thousand guilders a year, um, as a payment or a tax because they had an Anabaptist in their family. And so they would find all kinds of ways to take over people's farms and get the, get the livelihood out of them. Multiple times they came out as you're reading through, and it just, it's just short paragraphs, accounts of what was happening, and you'll find that like, there was a woman with child, and the, suddenly the Anabaptist hunters just showed up in their bedroom and, and yelled so much that the woman miscarried on the spot and, and, and like, ended up dying. And you're like, but they didn't kill anyone. They were just, you know, they all, and so you read through it, and you're like, how is this even possible? And so as I'm looking through that, what I was seeing, and this is the point that attaches us back to here, you had a people that were named the name of Christ, but they weren't in the spirit of Christ. They didn't have the fruit of Christ in their life. Oh, they had doctrine. Oh, they had form. Oh, they had buildings and places and things, and they could point and say, this is how we serve Jesus. They could even say that, you know, we have corrected the errors of the church, talking about the Catholic church that they had left. They had all of that that they could talk about. Now, and it's not as if the Catholic church was over there being saints at the time either. They were doing very similar things in their places they still had control of. So Switzerland was torn. Some of its, some, half of them, were Catholic, half of them were Reformed. And so like Zurich and Bern and, and a few of the others were Reformed, but some of the others were actually still Catholic cantons. So it's like this, his, historically, it's a very confusing time. What has happened today in our time frame is we don't have as much of the actual killing between other Christians, but we still have that same sort of like, I will put you out. And so there's a mistake been made that somehow our covenant as Christians is with each other, when in reality, our covenant as Christians is with Jesus Christ. And because we're all in covenant with him, we actually do have a lot in common and we share covenant, but it's because we share covenant with Christ, we all belong to him. And that's different than if I make a covenant with you and then I am trying to enforce the covenant. See, this is, I do not have the, amount, the power necessary or the authority to enforce a covenant between me and a whole bunch of other people. The, the covenant of marriage is already pushing it for how much we can actually handle as human beings. Like it is a huge deal and it is a picture of a heavenly covenant, but it's already pushing it. And so, and yet it is, is beautiful and precious. So, I, so make, make no mistake, I am 100% in favor of the covenant of marriage and our vows that we make to each other. That's important that we actually commit and covenant with each other. That is necessary. However, within the body of Christ, there is a question that comes up constantly. And we can have, like we could ask the question here. We can say, how do we make it so that when people come here, they never leave? 
Like we can ask that question. We can say, how is it, if, if we have Christians that come join Living Water Fellowship, uh, and in our case, we can say, what, what do we do to keep them from moving out of state? What, what, you know, what do we do? And so we can ask those kind of questions, but that is, still, that is not the right question as the body of Christ. The question that we're really asking is, what is Christ the King want, what is he looking for, and how do we interact with him? And so the distraction comes when we begin focusing on the earthly things that are here with each other, and we can say, well, I think so-and-so, and, and, and we will literally say this. We'll say, a church has called a pastor, and it's true. That church has asked this pastor to come join them in that local ministry, and there is a certain level of just a practical side of that where we need to be able to communicate within the body of Christ about these things, but there is a deeper something here that I don't want us to ever miss because I would rather have Living Water Fellowship fade away into oblivion, but have each one of us that has ever been part of Living Water Fellowship following Jesus so dramatically in our own lives that we are for the rest of our lives being faithful to him and walking with the Lord and doing what he's asked us to do. That would be, I would prefer that over piling up more and more people, but none of us are truly listening to the Lord and doing what he's asked us to do. And so as I was looking at reading through this, it says in verse seven of Exodus six, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. So he's, he's telling them, I want you to know that I will be your God and you will be my people. And as I was meditating on that, I was reminded of this. So this is over in 2 Chronicles 16.9. Here we have a whole row of kings who each one of them has the opportunity to be the leader of a revival in his nation. Each one of them has the potential of seeking the Lord, of, of rebuilding the Lord, the temple. Um, every one of them has this. Some of them are doing it. Some of them are not. And we get into here is, I believe, is during the times of Asa, and he's doing some reforms. And in Second Chronicles 16, in verse 9, there is this verse given where the Lord says, the, for, what is the prophet Hananiah is speaking. The Hananiah, the seer, is actually speaking. And he says in verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on you shall have wars. And so what's happening is Asa had an opportunity. Um, he had had at one point the uh, people come up against him from other nations, and he had cried out to the Lord. The Lord had delivered him, and now we had the king of Syria coming up. <clears throat> no, I'm, I'm saying this wrong. He, king Asa had, uh, I'm, I'm having a complete mind block on who actually was attacking. Um, so he has an attack, but he relied, instead of relying on the Lord his God, he's relying on the king of Syria. And what happens uh, in verse 8, it says, The Ethiopians and the Lubim are not, uh, were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hands. So that was the one question. But he says, Why did you not now actually trust in the Lord again? Why did you go and trust in king, the king of Syria? And this is a good question. And so I, I was, as I was reading through the, the little accounts, from um, 
the 16, uh, 1630s and 40s, this is what it would say. It would say something like, brother so-and-so was arrested. He was taken to the Othenbach and put into prison. And um, he was almost dying. And some of his other uh, inmates, some of the others that were in there, found a way to pour broth through a hole in the wall so that he could actually eat something. And he stayed faithful. And then he was released in uh, good conscience, uh, or he escaped in good conscience and is now still in hiding to this day. Or it would say that he was starved and then he, sometimes it said that, that someone would buckle under the pressure and say, I'll come to church with you. And then they'd, they'd release them and they'd come out and they'd be like, no, that is wrong. I, I, the principles by which you're forcing me to be at church with you are wrong. And the things that I believe that are different from the, you are also biblical and I need to stand for those. And so they would, they would, they would confess and ask forgiveness and say, no, I'm going to be faithful to Christ, not to what the local church is asking me to do. And so they would literally have this battle in their own flesh, in their mind, because they knew that if they followed Christ and were baptized as an outside of the Swiss Reformed Church, that then the Swiss Reformed Church would send their Anabaptist hunters and they would actually be, end up back in prison. And so they would have this wavering of faith, but then eventually they would be faithful and they would go back to prison. And sometimes they escaped and got out of the country. Sometimes they died in prison. It's very, very sad when you read through it, when you realize the families that are being impacted and what's happening. And the simple fact of it is, is that individuals were saying, I myself need to be able to read the scripture and understand what it says, and I need to respond to the Lord. So it feels like a response to this, that the eyes of the Lord are running to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. It seems that in this case, it would be, as you go over this area of Switzerland in this time, here are a lot of people who are saying, yeah, yeah, whatever, and they're just doing the normal things. And then you have someone that says, I want to follow God with my whole heart. And the moment they say, I want to follow God with my whole heart, that you then have the eyes of the Lord on them and they're being strengthened and walking with him. But at the same time, they're having the eyes of the world, the eyes of the enemy on them going, okay, take those people out. And so I want to put that caution in there as I give the rest of these verses that we're about to look at. And we'll start over in, um, later in Exodus as God is again speaking to his people. So this is Exodus chapter 19. There is this moment where God is, is explaining how he wants to interact with the children of Israel. And this is at Mount Sinai after they've come out of Egypt. So Exodus chapter 19, uh, verse 5, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So think about this. He says, all the earth is mine. But in Chronicles, the, Hananiah the seer is saying, the Lord is looking for someone whose heart is going to be faithful and loyal to him. And so as the Lord is looking, and I'm, I'm just imagining the generations, you have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, you have Levi, Kohath, Amram, uh, Moses, and Aaron. As he's looking down these generations, does he find in their generations, does he find it, that in Abraham, he seems to find that man whose heart is loyal to him. He interacts with him a lot. With Isaac, there's some interaction, but not as much. So the question is, did the Lord sense in Isaac that he truly was what he wanted in a man? Was he looking across the generation, going, there's Isaac. That's my, he is loyal to me. 
You know how it says in Job, when, when, when Satan came before the Lord and, and, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Just look at him. The eyes of the Lord have been running to and fro, and he looks down and he sees Job. He says, look at that man. He's loyal to me. Well, he gets to Moses and Aaron, and we see a lot of interaction between Moses and Aaron and the Lord. We see times when Moses is faithful, but Aaron is not. We see times when Aaron is faithful, but the rest of the people are not. And so we see this interaction that's happening, and this is important for us to consider because there's a whole genealogy given that suggests that at the same time that Levi and Kohath were having sons, while all the others, there, there's, there's such a multiplication of people. There's so many people in Israel that, at this time. The Israelites in Egypt, they're a great host of people. How many of them, when the Lord looks at them, does he say, that one is loyal to me? His heart is loyal to me. And my concern, just on a very basic consideration of human beings, is that there were less that were loyal to the Lord than we would have hoped. That when there was a gathering, when there was a, someone speaking, like say Moses, and he's sharing to everyone, and, the, and they all believe, and they're like, yeah, okay, yeah, that, that more people would give assent and say, yep, we believe in this. But the moment it got hard, a lot of them were like, well, not really. I'm not used to looking to the Lord for anything. I'm used to depending on myself. I'm used to working my own way. So, eh, not really going that way. And so when I think of the church in any given time, like the church in Switzerland, and I think, okay, so how about the church in Switzerland? How many people were truly right with God during that time frame? Because you didn't have very many non-Anabaptists standing up for the Anabaptists in Switzerland. You had a, quite a few non-Anabaptists standing up for them in Holland and in other places. And we actually have letters where they wrote to the officials in Switzerland and said, look, these guys pay taxes, so let them pay taxes and let them do what they want. They're not going to rob, kill, steal. They have good, they have good morals. They're, they're ethical. They're hard workers, so let them pay their taxes and live. And it wasn't, it was not a, a possibility for so many of them. And I think the pure, simple fact was that they could be baptized into the church. They could grow up in their little cities and villages. They could go down and do all the normal things that were church-related but when the Lord, the eyes of the Lord were looking out over Switzerland, looking to see whose heart was loyal to him, they could be in the church and not have that response back to the Lord. And so then I look at, okay, let's come to our time and our day. We have people, we even have people who seemingly have separated themselves to serve God in a more specific way. So in my experience, I've had more friends who were home educated who were saying, we are doing this because we want to raise our children up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And this has now been going on for 30-something years, um, actually almost 40 years, and that the, the, the official homeschool movement, once it hits 40 years old, that, that, that usually is a defining time for in any movement of any type. If you look at denominations, at 40 years, they either settle into... The, the frozen chosen or they disband or it's, it's very seldom that after 40 years you have a denomination that is still on fire for the same mission that started them the, at the beginning. Things change. Movements of people, we change. We have expectations. There's things that we do. And so 
at, after, so if, if I'm looking at us and saying, okay, well, let's take the conservative homeschool movement, it was started because people said, I want to teach my children about Jesus. Is that still the case? Or do we now, can, can the eyes of the Lord rove over us and say, ah, there's quite a few here who really don't care about Jesus at all, whose hearts are not loyal to me? When you look across the churches in America, how many of us are just happy with the church part and we're not really looking with loyalty toward the Lord and saying, what do you want of me? I, send me, I will go. Um, we were listening this morning to that song. It's by um, Steve Green, um, The Mission, and it says, I will go. And there's a line in there where it says, I will go where there are no easy roads. And I was contemplating about that, and I said, you know, I love that song. And I remember when that song was, was really meaningful to, it was actually to Stacy and myself, both of us, and how, how much that meant. And I said, if I had realized then how serious he was about the, where there are no easy roads, I might have reconsidered a little bit of my enthusiasm. And yet, there are no easy roads in life. And it's like the, you've probably seen the meme. It's like, you know, being sober is hard. Being drunk and addicted is hard. So choose your heart. Um, and and it, it, they take that into all kinds of different places, you know. So like you can, you know, going to the gym is hard. Being fat is hard. Choose your heart. It's going to be hard. So which one do you want? And so there is a certain reality there where as we live in a broken world, it's going to be hard. That's not the shocking, surprising part. The part is, are we able to actually connect with our creator and our maker and actually connect with the meaning and the purpose that he has for us? Because living in Egypt was hard, but exodus, exodusing, exiting Egypt was also hard. So choose your hard. Living in the wilderness was hard, but crossing the Jordan and fighting the Canaanites, that was also hard. So which hard do you want? And so the message that we're seeing here is that it's better to go the hard that has the hand of God with us going, I will go with you to do this thing. So that's what we want. So Exodus 19, we have this. Uh, if we go over to Deuteronomy chapter 14, we have a reiteration using almost the same words. So Deuteronomy 14, verse 2 And this is, a, this is actually something of a bit of a, a almost a rebuke, but it is a, it is a list in which Moses is speaking to them, and God is speaking through Moses. And in verse 2, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, We have this special treasure. That, and he's talking here to the Israelites. And if we go into um, Deuteronomy chapter 26, so just later in the book, we have it reiterated again. 26 verse 18. Well, let's start reading back in verse 16. He says, This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today, you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God. 
and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments, and that you will obey his voice. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed to you, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you high above all nations, which he has made in praise, in name, and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. So this word special, that is translated sometimes as peculiar. Uh, if you go over to Psalm 135, we find another mention of the same language, the same Hebrew word. So this is in Psalm 135. Psalm 135, verse 4. It says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. But then if we flip over to the New Testament, we have two what feel like quotes of this. We have one in Titus. So if you go to Titus chapter 2, Uh, Titus chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good work. So he uses this phrase that God, that Christ is redeeming us for himself, that we might be his special people. And then in 1 Peter 2, we have, uh, so this is Paul using it. Now we have Peter quoting almost the exact same thing. So 1 Peter chapter 2. And this is not correct. Well, I have a scripture here that is not making any sense no matter how I look at it. So I'm not sure where this reference is supposed to be. I thought I had, where is the verse where Peter talks about God setting us apart to be his people? I thought I had it. Which chapter? Three. Chapter 2, verse 9. That's the one I'm looking for. Okay. I had, my references were scrambled. Okay. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So this is, this is 
the, the, the point that I wanted to make about is the, the Lord and his people. We have the Lord working with Israel. He's saying, I want you to be my special people. But even as you look at the children of Israel, you see that it's not every single Israelite who seems to have his heart turned toward you. It seems to be a changing thing. It seems to be now this person is seeking the Lord, now this person is. And that from one generation to the next, sometimes it's the priests, sometimes it's the kings, sometimes it's just random prophets. Sometimes, and, and so it, it's not a consistent thing. So we come to the New Testament and we come to the New Covenant where God is still saying, the eyes of the Lord are still roving throughout the whole earth. The grace of God, as Paul said to Titus, is, has appeared to all men. So, so there is something in the invitation from the Almighty that has appeared to all men. All of us have had some sort of an invitation. And some of us have just simply heard the invitation from the king and said, I'm fine as I am, thank you very much, and we've moved on with our own life. Some of us look at that and say, the king is inviting me to walk with him, to be his own special people, to be part of what he is doing. And that is now his people. We were not a people. You can't trace us by human bloodlines and say, oh yes, all of these people follow Christ and all of these people don't. Because what you'll discover is that some of the, the children of some of the worst murderers in history become Christians. And some of the best disciples of Jesus in history, their children become murderers. And so it changes around because it's each individual person and God is looking to see us. And so when I think of us as a fellowship, when I think of the church of Jesus Christ throughout the United States. When I think of the church around the world, I understand that there are different challenges that we're facing right now. There are churches and, and other countries that are facing entirely different challenges than the church in America. But the church in America, we, we face a challenge of apathy. We face a challenge where, where there is a certain level of what can the church do for me? And so when I've heard Christians say things like, when I first came to Christ, I didn't understand that it was all about me. I'm like, yeah, wait, hold on. It isn't all about you. Who told you this? And what they meant, but were misapplying, was the fact that when Christ died, he wanted to totally redeem every part of me. He wanted to take me from the complete loss that I was in, the darkness that I was in, and bring me to a place of light. That's what Christ wanted to do. So in that sense, when Christ died, it was all about me. It was all about getting me redeemed, getting me saved, getting me repented, getting me changed from the darkness that I was in and making me into his own special people that is set apart for good works that no matter what field of work I'm in, whether I'm in a, as a businessman, whether I'm in, in church, whether I'm a minister uh, at home, whether I'm an educator, no matter where I am, every part of my life is completely submitted to Christ. That's important. And so as Christ is calling us, yes, he wants all of us, but it's actually not about us. It's not about our comfort. It's not about how well we can do something. It's about him, what he wants. And so he is going to, as we look to him and respond to him, he is going to touch our lives. He's going to want to interact with us and he's going to allow us to experience things that will continue to grow our faith. Any Israelite in Egypt at the time when Moses and Aaron showed up and said, we're going to go talk to Pharaoh and here's what's going to happen. Because part of what they were having to tell him is God said he's going to harden his heart and God's going to have to do a whole bunch of stuff. Any Israelite at that time could have said, wow, 
I am going to trust the Lord. I'm going to be faithful to him. I'm going to follow him. Any Israelite could have done that. They didn't all. Some of them were so busy being overwhelmed that they couldn't actually trust the Lord. And as you see, as we go through, you'll see that some really trusted God, others a little bit trusted God. Some trusted God for this, but couldn't trust him for that. Like just a simple fact of getting up and doing the Passover and then leaving Egypt, like that required faith, that required an active faith. The, the, you know, getting out to the Red Sea and looking at the Red Sea waters parting, looking at the armies of Pharaoh and saying, oh, I'm gonna walk through there, that requires faith. Because most of us have never had to look at walls of water, as it says, and to walk through the middle. No, most of us have never gone, okay, yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, in fact, if we are at the beach and we see a wall of water, we say, well, let's get as far away from that wall of water as we can because it's going to collapse somewhere. And it did on, on the Egyptians. So, so it requires faith. There was faith in action all through the life of Moses in the people around him. But there were times when their faith, like when, the, when, the, when they come back from the promised land with the, with the report, the spies, they didn't get the full, re- as they're giving the report, um, you know, Caleb and Joshua keep saying, but, but, but God's going to be with us. It's going to be awesome. It's beautiful. Tell them about the part where it's like milk and honey flowing. Tell them that part. And everyone else is going, giants, I'm telling you, giants. We're like grasshoppers. And J- Joshua and Caleb are going, but, but there's so much more. And so as believers, you will find that there will be people around you. And sometimes you'll be the person that all you're doing is saying giants, giants, giants. And that's all you're seeing. And someone else is going, but milk and honey, the provision of the Lord, he is there. He is faithful. And God is trying, is looking whose heart is going to be loyal to him so that when the, when the other armies come against us, we don't look to the king of, to king of Syria. We don't look to someone else and say, well, how are we going to be rescued from this? We say, well, we can say with, um, the, with Daniel and his companions, we can literally say, we believe that the Lord is able to take us through this. But even if he is not able, we will still be faithful to him. The reality is he's able. If like all the accounts I was reading this week, if, the, if we get taken out and we die, that is a comparatively short time of suffering and then we're with him in eternal joy for eternity and that's beautiful, we can't lose. When our eyes and our hearts are loyal to King Jesus, we cannot lose because even if they kill us, it doesn't matter because we're with him. And God, as long as there are people on the earth, God is going to be looking out across us and saying, well, who's going to be loyal to me? He's not asking who's going to be. All of these things might be com, com, uh, in some way interconnected, but he's not looking specifically and saying, who has con- covenanted with the church? Who has committed themselves to a particular people? He's not asking that question. He's asking one question. Of all these people out here, who has committed themselves to me? Who's following me? Whose heart is loyal toward me? And as Peter says there, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, 
who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. When I think of the genealogies that are written back here in Exodus, I want whoever the genealogist is that's going down the line, when he gets to my name, I want him to have to stop and say, in his days, God did this. I want the genealogist to not just be able to keep on going and saying, here's a whole list of people, but I want him to say this right here, in this moment, this generation trusted the Lord. This generation sought the Lord and God did mighty things. I want to see that. And so I don't want it to be where I am one of the list of names that we've got to get through so we can get to the person who actually listened to the Lord. I want to be one of the generations that God interacted with on a deep level. And that's my prayer for us, is that we don't become comfortable because we are the right generations and we are the people of God. I want us to be aware that there is a God in heaven and his eyes are still today roving to and fro across the whole earth. Just as the enemy is out looking whom he can devour, God is looking to say, well, who here has a heart that's turned toward me? Who is turned toward me? That's what I'm, that's, that was what I got out of Exodus chapter six this week. That is the deep prayer of my heart for myself and for all of us, is that we would never lose that freshness of that response, that God is looking and he's going to be faithful. God is faithful, that's who he is. And even if we die, if I'm doing it because my heart is loyal to the Lord, isn't that awesome? It might be sad for those who are left behind, but it also spurs us on toward righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have called us to yourself, that we can be a chosen people, that we can be a holy priesthood, Lord, that we can be your own special people, your peculiar treasure, Lord. And Father, that it doesn't matter where the boundaries of nations and states are. It doesn't matter the bloodlines of famous people. The thing that matters is that when you look at us, that our heart responds to you. And so I think of the psalmist who said, when you said, seek my face, my heart said unto you, Lord, your face will I seek. But that is our heart. We want to seek your face. So thank you for giving us that opportunity. Thank you for, for looking at us. Thank you for considering us. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for visiting us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And thank you for giving us an opportunity to respond to you. So the Lord, that in the generations to come, Lord, we want our lives and our time here to bring glory and honor and praise to you. That as long as the earth shall stand, that the faith that you have given us, that when we respond to you, Lord, that that would draw people to yourself. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. And thank you for your people. And that sprinkled throughout all of America and around the whole world in, your, in the churches of people, there are some who are, who are looking towards you, who are expectantly waiting to hear from you. Thank you, Father. We love you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.